Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting worldwide on Internet Radio. Refreshing takes on legal strategies. Straightforward answers to difficult tax questions. Independent ideas on building wealth. It's the Refresher Wealth Show with Mark Kohler and Matt Sorensen. Get your free copy of Mark and Matt's ebooks and sign up for their weekly free newsletter with important tax deadlines and articles at refreshyourwealth.com. Now, here's Mark and Matt. Welcome, everybody, to today's show. Excited to be here with you on Open Forum Show. And I'll just say right now, it's live, and so the sound quality is a little different than usual. Uh, <laughs> we're able to uh, mix it down and make it nicer for the uh, regular broadcast each week in a studio. But when it's the live show, we're calling in through blogtalkradio.com, and we're here with you. And some of you may be calling in live right now. I'll give you the call-in number here in a moment. But uh, this is Mark Kohler, uh, your uh, co-host today with a couple uh, pitch hitters for Matt Sorensen. He's at a conference speaking in San Diego on self-directed IRA strategies, just, you know, touring the country, blowing it up. And we're all jealous he's in San Diego. Who wouldn't want to be in San Diego, right? But if you've got a big enough bank account you could live there but it's a it's a big deal and um so matt's not here so i have rick and jerem on the show with me right now so this is a couple regular guests on the show let me introduce them briefly um first rick taylor usually the cpa gets kicked to the curb so i'll do the cpa first uh rick <laughs> rick taylor is one of our managers at kne cpas been a cpa for oh forever man in this family man he's been at our office at KE cpas in cedar city for several years we were grateful to attract him and him come live in our little small town helps clients all over the country um so he's going to be kind of our tax resource to help balance some ideas off with me on the tax issues rick welcome hey thanks mark good to be here today all right we're going to be looking to you for some very you know insightful jokes and um, bring out that other side of your CPA character. So. The accountant jokes, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's see, our we've we've trained our audience to be expect lively, fun conversations about tax. So you know, dig deep, man. <laughs> dig deep. All right. All um, right. I'll see what I can do. All right. Thank you. And then we also have Jerem Bergeson who is a lawyer at KKOS Lawyers. He runs our Cedar City office who is also an avid NFL football fan and went to college for broadcasting. We, he, his dream job would have been to be at ESPN behind a desk or on the radio at ESPN Radio, but he got stuck with us as a lawyer, so he's going to settle to be a guest on the Refresh Your Wealth show on a regular basis. So, Jerem, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I do get to live my dream by being on this show every once in a while. And I will say, San Diego, California has nothing on Cedar City, Utah. It's it's beautiful here. So <laughs> that's true. This time of year, Cedar is amazing. And and you know, for those that are local, it's Cedar. It's not Cedar City. It's Cedar. Yeah. So uh, for those true. that are driving through, and we always welcome any of our. Uh, radio listeners, that you can take a tax-deductible trip, come visit the accounting office or legal office in Cedar City, Utah, which is just two hours north of Vegas, and it is the beautiful uh, national parks area. You know, it's kind of, it's, there's Zions, there's uh, Bryce, there's Monument Valley just around the corner. Um, boy, what are the other parks right there, guys? You got uh, Cedar Breaks. Uh, Canyonlands oh, yeah. is up around Canyonlands, arches. You're not too far arches, from the Grand Canyon, yeah. even the North Rim, anyway. Yeah, and you can stop in Vegas for a buffet along the way. So yep. um, that's where our home office is. So everybody, it's a great family trip in the summer, and tax deductible because you're going to stop in and talk to your accountant or lawyer. So come see us, and uh, 
set up a tent and go hike a trail or something. Well, anyway, so this week is our open forum show, and I'm going to try to keep it lively too. <sighs> I'm this is my fun part of the day. I've just been returning emails, working at my desk all morning, and now I get to uh, talk questions, tax and legal questions that we hope we can answer. These are You guys post some tough ones. So for if any of you are listening live on your computer, you can dial in, and live callers always get priority. The call-in number is 646-668-8326. That's 646-668-8326. Now, if you're listening to this on iTunes, obviously it's been uh, it's being rebroadcast on iTunes. Uh, the live show is once to sometimes two times a month. So we try to do it every three weeks. And so you will get a kind of a notice of that in the newsletter. So we're hoping that many of you get to refreshyourwealth.com, sign up for our weekly newsletter that's free, and there's tax and legal tips and videos and uh, announcements and tax deadline you know, notations. And also when we do a live show, we always let you know in advance, and we broadcast Wednesday at noon Mountain Time when we go live. If you have a question while you're listening right now, you can email them to me right now. Don't send them to Matt Sorensen. He's not going to forward them to me right now. He's on a stage somewhere. But you can send them to me, Mark, M-A-R-K, at markjkohler.com. That's probably the easiest. I've got the accounting and law firm address, but Mark, M-A-R-K, at markjkohler, K-O-H, L-E-R.com. So, um, all right. Well, guys, you ready to hit it? Can I throw some curveballs at you? Fire away. Let's rock and roll. Okay, folks, this is Buckle Up, and we're hoping there's some golden nugget in these questions posed by you, the listeners. And you can always email them in advance for next Open Forum show. So don't feel like you have to email them a day before the show or whatever. If you think of a question, you're like, man, I want those guys to hit it on the show next time there's open forum. Just email it over. We'll do our best. Okay, so um, I'm going to throw this away to Jerem. This is an IRA LLC question. This is from Kathleen over at Keller Williams. And she said, I have an LLC with one property in it. It's owned by my self-directed IRA. You rock, Kathleen. We love that strategy. Stoked that you're doing it. She says, I am also doing hard money loans. Do I need a separate LLC for that or use the one that I have a property in or just use the self-directed IRA company? Uh, and Kathleen, you, you are bringing up several options. It may be just one of convenience and simplicity. Jerem, what do you think? Give her, give her the pros and cons of these options and what you might recommend on a call. Well, I think typically I would have her probably do her hard money loans out of the same IRA LLC that owns the property. Um, there's not a lot of additional liabilities in making uh, a hard money loan. You're probably not going to be the one that gets sued there. Um, you may end up suing people if they default on the loans. If you wanted to keep the liabilities of the two businesses, so of the hard money loans and of the, the I'm assuming it's a rental property, separate, completely separate, then yeah, you could establish a second LLC, a second IRA LLC owned by obviously your IRA and then have that second LLC do the hard money loans. But that second LLC just seems like a lot, a lot of administrative cost and headache. It's a separate bank account. Probably have to renew it every year. You have to pay to get it set up. Um, there's really not a lot of reason to have that, that second IRA LLC with this sort of business. There's just not a ton of liability usually in making hard money loans. Um, I wouldn't do it directly out of your IRA custodian uh, account. I think that was the third option she brought up um, because you're going to have transaction fees every time money goes in and out of that account. The whole point of your IRA LLC, or at least a big part of the point, is to avoid those fees. So that's that would be my suggestion. Use the same entity. All right. I love it. And, you know, I totally agree with you because I think it's one of convenience. Um, hard money loan lending is not going to create any liability really for you. Um, Kathleen, yeah. so I, I think just doing it in the same LLC makes sense. All right, now uh, I'm going to try to um, throw some numbers now. Okay, this is, you know, Rick, that's what you're good at, the numbers. 
So this is a this is a tricky one. Um, <laughs> you ready? Okay. I am ready. This is uh, okay. This is Christian um, over on the Big Island of Hawaii. So this is, he starts it out with a big aloha, and he said I attended a weekend seminar you had in Honolulu years ago. I'm a real estate appraisal, um, and I. Uh, he now lives in the Big Island and operates a bed and breakfast, living most of our dream job uh, for us uh, out there. So, and, and we'll give him a little plug. It's the Rainbow Plantation Bread and Breakfast by Captain Cook. So if any of you are looking, that's a fellow listener out there running a B&B on the Big Island. He says, I am plan on selling my property that I'm doing my bed and breakfast. It's listed for $1.4 million. Yes, everybody, it's Hawaii. Um, I hope to get at least $1.2 million. I purchased it five years ago for five hundred grand. <laughs> Gotta love that. Uh, it's in my name only, and it's my. I'm claiming it as my primary residence. Married, and I own an S corp, Real Time Inc. Here's my question. So, Rick, before I sell, can or should I transfer title to my S corp and put the price, purchase price at one million plus renovation costs? Mm. This way, my wife and I can claim the profit deduction of 250000 each, that's 500 and then sell it without having to pay tax. Okay, question marks there. Then when I, it is sold to the buyer by the S-Corp, the profit they make is either taxed lower at 15%, but can instead be reinvested in new properties. Ooh, boy, this is going to be good, Christian. You're banking on President Trump getting you something here, I think. Um, so... <laughs> uh, he, I, in summary, I'm going to summarize this because it gets even more confusing. Bottom line, I'm going to rephrase this, Christian, for Rick. Rick, this is his primary residence. He's selling it for 1.2, bought it for 500. Um, he's thinking about transferring it into an S corp before he sells it, trying to create some sort of renovation cost plug-in figure or some sort. What do you think? As you, what are you? Uh, I won't lead you down this path. Of what I might think, Rick, you tell us your first take on this. Um, my first take is never, ever, ever put a, a primary residence in an S corp. Um, that's that's a big no-no. I think where where Christian is getting hung up here is he thinks that the the income that he's going to earn from the the sale of this property is going to be taxed different under an S corp than than under his personal, um, and that's not the case. It, it's going to be taxed the exact same way whether it's in the S corp or under his personal name. So so number one, no, don't put it in the S corp. Don't worry about going through all of that, um, and just just keep it in the personal in your personal name. Sell it as your your personal primary residence. Um, you still get the the five hundred thousand dollar exemption um, on the on your your gain from the property, um, even if it's in your your personal name. Well, and it probably has to be in your personal name in order to qualify for that yeah. that exemption. Um, I don't know. Is that are those what your thoughts were too, Mark? I, I suspect they are. Yeah, they are. And this is good for everybody listening. If you're going to sell your personal residence, you can exempt two hundred fifty grand if you're single of gain. And 500000 of gain if you're married. So I would tell Christian, keep it in your individual name, sell it, take the, the primary home exemption. And even though you bought it for 500 you might even have some improvements over the years, which will help increase your basis over the last five years, and that could help exclude more of the gain. But even if you do sell it for $1.2 million and you've got 200000 of capital gain, that's going to be better than running it through an S-Corp too. Um, Donald Trump has not got his wishes yet with his tax proposal, so cap gain is going to be what you want. Um, and you can't 1031 exchange it. Even if you put it in an S-Corp and you're living in it, you can't 1031 exchange it. So give up your theory of a 1031 exchange. Just pay the capital gain on 200 k Love that you made 500 tax-free. We are all dreaming of living in the Big Island and making 500 grand after living there five years. So Christian, God bless you. We, we're very envious. You've got a great situation. <laughs> uh, don't get greedy. I think you're going to be fine. Um, so, and thank you for your kind words. Uh, I, I really uh, appreciate um, your email. You said some other compliments there about the show. Okay, so I've got another one here that's going to take us down the path of the 401k. 
Guys, uh, this is a hard one, and I'm going to see uh, open to both. Uh, leave it open to both of you for a comment. Uh, I'll take my first stab at it. So this is from Sanan, regular listener. Thanks, Sanan. He <laughs> says he loves the show on a regular, great show, as always. Um, he says, if I have a question on the benefit, if any, of after-tax contributions to a 401k beyond the regular contribution contribution and catch-up, is this used as a backdoor? IRA type strategy, getting around the caps on contribution amounts. I'm borrowing Matt's phrase. And Matt's written some articles, folks, on the backdoor IRA. I was told that one can convert the after-tax contribution to Roth 401k after the fact and tax-free on the principal portion, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking forward to your con- uh, clarification. Okay, Sinan, you've blended a couple strategies into one, and let me provide my clarifying comment, and then Rick and um, uh, Jerem, you tell me your thoughts. So everybody out here, this is a big one. Let me tell you the backdoor strategy, which is really cool. And then uh, kind of how Sinan has maybe mixed it up a little. Here's the backdoor strategy. Many of us out there would love to put money in a Roth, but we make too much money. So we can't put money in a Roth. So what we do is we make a regular contribution to an IRA, which might be around five grand or six grand, depending on your age. But you make a non-deductible contribution to your traditional IRA. You don't get a write-off for it because you make too much money. You just put it in your traditional IRA. And then on day two, you convert it to Roth. And that's considered kind of this backdoor strategy. So you can get it into a Roth by going through this backdoor method. You can also use a chunking strategy. Everybody out there, if you've got money in a traditional IRA and you want to convert it slowly but surely over to a Roth, we call chunking it. Take it and every year chunk over a little bit of it, pay the tax on it, but once it becomes a Roth, it grows tax-free, comes out tax-free. Time always proves that the Roth is better in the long run. So take the tax up front if you can afford to pay it. That's kind of this backdoor strategy that Matt talks about. However, Sanon, this does not work with a 401k. You can't make additional after-tax contributions to a 401k and then think you can convert it to a Roth 401k or somehow backdoor it in. 401ks are amazing, and you can make big contributions in a 401k compared to an IRA, but you can't make these extra contributions or kind of this conversion-type contribution, uh, contribution. That's more of an IRA-type strategy. So, regrettably, Sanan, max out your 401k contribution uh, in, with the right amount of payroll. Everybody knows I love to talk about that sweet spot but um, don't think you're going to overdo it and backdoor into something else. So that's my take. Um, you guys, anything you want to add to that? I think you um, yeah, explained, it, explained it pretty clearly. Yeah, I'll let. I don't. I don't really have too much. Go ahead. And go. No, I was just going to say. Yeah, I agree. I've never heard of any sort of of backdoor into a 401k. Um, I, I don't know if um, if if the question was trying to get more money into a, a retirement account or if it was directly geared toward just, just Roth. Um, if you're wanting to get more money into a retirement account, um, if you've already maxed out the 401k, then, then you ought to think about um, doing some sort of pension or something like that. If you've got that, that sort of money to do that, then that could be an option as well. All right. I like it, guys. Okay. I've got another hard one. Boy, you... I want to hand it to you listeners out there. You sure put us to the test. Um, this is from Steve out in North Carolina. Um, I'm going to give my best shot at this again. This is a, a, a self-directed IRA strategy. And again, Jerem or Rick may want to add to this. And <laughs> you guys probably appreciate me taking first steps so you can think through, <laughs> through your notes. These hard ones. Yes. That's what I'm trying to do here. Thank you. <laughs> taking one for the All team right. there right <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, I'm getting beat up here alright so he says topic number one assume that you have a self-directed IRA that owns 50% of a debt finance property and the same person or some other person's solo 401k owns the other 50% okay so let me put this in perspective for everybody listening you've got you could have it in an LLC, or you could have the property owned tenants in common, but you've got a property with a mortgage against it. So say it's a $100,000 rental with a $70,000 mortgage, let's just say hypothetically, and half it's owned by a Roth IRA and half's owned by a 401k. So here's his question. 
uh, Steve says, does the partner of the solo 401k, so the, um, the 401k partner, have to meet the definition of a qualified organization under Internal Revenue Code Section 514C9 in order for the solo 401k to avoid UDFI tax? My answer is you meet that definition. I wouldn't worry about it. Solo 401ks in no way pay UDFI. By definition of doing real estate and in this type of structure, they would be fine. Now, Matt Sorensen may override that, Steve, because he's our expert that's not here with us on the show, and he lectures on this in detail. But every time I've heard Matt talk about this, you're going to be fine avoiding UDFI tax. Now, anybody out there listening, what this means is UDFI tax is this unrelated debt financed income. So if your IRA invests in a property that has debt, you don't pay tax on the proportion that's not debt financed, but on the proportion that is debt financed, the IRA would pay some level of tax. And you may think that's unfair. What the heck? Why is my IRA paying tax? But you leverage the IRA. So the government says you've got to at least pay tax on the leverage portion. But that does not apply in the case of a 401k, period. And then Steve follows it up and says, well, if the 401k gets out of it, does the self-directed Roth get out of it? No, it does not, no matter what definition you give it, whether it's a qualified organization or not. And then he says, what other types of partnerships should a solo 401k watch out for that might generate UDFI? I'm not aware of any, um, Steve. UDFI just does not apply in a solo 401k. So if you want to join an LLC or an LP or own property, tenants in common, as long, if it's got debt, cool, leverage away. The 401k doesn't pay you UDFI tax. Now, I may get overridden here by even Jeremy Rick, and I'm going to feel like a fool, but I'm just giving you my initial take with that little qualifier. Um, Jeremy, I know you play a little bit more in this round. What are your yeah. thoughts? I, I'm not going to override. I'm just going to clarify. Or, or My understanding is UDFI does go away when a 401k leverages, uh, is leveraged to purchase real estate. If you bar, if the 401k borrows money to purchase some other sort of asset that then spits off income, my understanding is there would be UDFI. It's only when the 401k or some other kind of qualified plan or organization borrows money to purchase real estate. I think it has to be real estate. No, I'm with you, Rick. Anything you want to add? Um, no, um, I, I think you're probably right on that. The only thing that I would maybe add to the the UDFI is maybe just put a plug into the KKOS Lawyers website is is you've got a, a blog on there um, about the UDFI and, and the requirements for it, um, as well as the the 990T which reports the UDFI, um, and that's a I've I've used that several times um, interacting with clients. Um, when they have questions about the UDFI. So, so there, there's a great blog article on the, the KKOS Lawyers website to, to address a lot of these questions. Love it. Thanks so much, guys. Okay, now, believe it or not, after Steve tried to stump us, he's got a topic number two, a second follow-up question. And he says, okay. what are the most important things to watch out for when doing a 1031 exchange inside a Roth IRA? Jeez. Thanks, Steve. Uh, do you want to bring up world <laughs> peace, too? You're killing me here. You're killing me. Okay. So he says, 1031 exchange inside a Roth IRA that, that doesn't apply to a regular 1031 exchange, particularly when employing a strategy to avoid UDFI altogether by purchasing a replacement property. Okay. So all of you out there that are driving a car, and I don't want you to careen off the side of the road with boredom or confusion, hang on. Here's what Steve's talking about. 1031 exchanges are awesome, and that's where you sell one property and buy another one of equal or greater value. You don't pay any tax. You can sell one and buy three. You can sell three and buy one. But the key is whatever you buy has to be of equal equal or greater value than what you sold in combination or just doing one property for another. That's a 1031 exchange. And we have many, many clients employing that strategy on a regular basis. 1031 exchanges are cool. Well, why in the world would you ever do this in a Roth IRA when a Roth doesn't pay tax? Well, as in topic number one, 
all of you realize that a Roth might pay tax if there's debt involved, this UDFI. So if I do a 1031 exchange inside of a Roth IRA, do I avoid the UDFI? Well, the answer would be yes, you would avoid the UDFI if you did a 1031 exchange inside the Roth. And you just follow the same procedures with the accommodator and the replacement period and the identification period and all the things you have to do with the 1031. But he, he, Steve throws in a little caveat. The property I'm going to replace it with will not be debt financed. And holding that replacement property for at least a year, is that okay? Here's the problem with that, Steve. Everybody think here. Say you have a property for hundred grand, and it's got debt on it of 50000 Now, if you sell it, you've got to buy a new property of 100000 or more, $100,001, to make the 1031 work. Well, if I've got debt on this property of fifty grand, and I go to sell it, I only have 50000 in cash. I've got to go out and get another loan to get up to $101,000. Well, if my Roth IRA is going to buy a property with no debt, that means I've got to come up with $50,001 in my Roth IRA to add to the cash on the relinquished property. Well, if you don't have $51,000 sitting in your Roth IRA, you're going to have to get a mortgage. Um, so in this example, Steve, if your Roth IRA really has that much cash sitting in the LLC and you can add it to the replacement, I mean the, the relinquished property cash that you got at closing and give it to the accommodator and you don't need to go get a mortgage, go for it. That's cool. Um, you just avoided um, UDFI and you would in perpetuity avoid that UDFI because if you hold it at least a year and then sell it, you pay no UDFI. And Steve, i got to hand it to you. This is one freaking great idea. I'd love it. If some of you out there that are Roth IRA investors, you may have just had a huge aha moment because I don't talk about this strategy much. And the reason why not a lot of people have extra cash sitting in the Roth to make up for the debt. So it's a great strategy, Steve, but you got to have the cash in the Roth to pull it off. Um, Jerem, Rick, oof, I'm going to throw you some softball here in a minute. I'm going to plead the fifth. That sounded, that sounded good. <laughs> yeah, that, that You're playing, pulling the CIA, I mean, sorry, the FBI director. <laughs> You're just going to plead the fifth? Yeah, me and, okay. me and James Comey plead, plead the fifth. <laughs> okay. All right. Rick, anything on your end? You know what? I, I've never um... – I've never thought through that strategy before. Uh, my my initial question on it is, if you've got the cash sitting in your Roth, um, why not just pay down the the debt on the the property and just sell it without the 1031? I I, I mean, maybe I'm just not thinking through it enough and haven't sit and sat and pondered on it enough. But that would be oh. my initial question on it. Oh well, I like it, Rick. And let me throw out this note. Um, or answer is that the property has to be debt free for at least a year right to, with, to yeah. avoid UDFI. Oh, so okay. if he's anxious to sell, yeah. yeah. So if he pays down the mortgage, he's got to sit sense. on it a year before he sells it. And in today's market, it is a freaking seller's market. So yep. maybe time yep. to. If you can sell. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. And it sounds like Steve has the cash because he wants to buy the next property with no debt. So, Steve, this could be a great idea. I love it. Okay, well, everybody that's a regular listener, your brain may be ready to explode. So we're going we're gonna to throw out a softball question here. This is from Aaron, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, um, I uh, love this question, and it's a good one that all of us need to hear. So no more technical crap for a minute. It says, Dear Mark, following your guidance, my wife and I have been acquiring rental cash flow properties. Yes, Aaron, love it. We're all looking for rentals. Good idea. The next house I'm looking to purchasing, I'm thinking about doing it in a partnership with my friend. Aside from the concerns of partnerships, how does one do a partnership? It will be a cash purchase, but are both of our names on title? Are both of our names on the insurance? Do you have any guidelines for structuring this? Um, uh, and so, what do you think? Um, I'm going to throw it at Jerem first as our resident lawyer setting up partnerships all the time. Um, what do you think? Well, there are a few options, but I think the best one, um, if, if neither of you have any entity already, would be to set up an LLC. 
to own the property. The LLC goes on title, and then each of you own whatever percentage of that LLC um, that you're going to own in your partnership. If it's a 50-50 partnership, you each own 50% of the LLC. The LLC operating agreement and the uh, minutes uh, of uh, organizational resolution, excuse me, of, of the LLC are then going to be the place where you set out the parameters of your partnership. Um, who's going to do what? Who's bringing cash? Who's bringing credit? Who's going to perform services? What's everybody bringing to the table? What every, what's everybody going to get uh, in terms of cash flow? Whatever, what's everybody going to get if the property is sold? Who's going to make decisions about you know, screening tenants and if we're ever going to sell the property? All of that is put into your operating agreement and the, the ancillary documents, uh, and you get the limited liability protection of the LLC so that if, that if something happens on the property, somebody gets hurt uh, and injured and they want to sue the property owner, if the two of you are on there as tenants in common, then the two of you and your personal assets are at stake in a lawsuit. Whereas if the LLC owns the property, it's the LLC uh, and its assets that are uh, at stake in a lawsuit. Yeah, and and frankly, I, I, we could go on and on here, uh, Aaron. This is Jerem, fantastic comments, and I'm just going to say this right now. Please go back and listen to in our Refresher Your Wealth podcast series. We've done several shows on partners and partnerships. If you just scroll through the last 50 shows, you'll probably see three shows at least dedicated to proper partnerships and things to look out for and how to avoid a bad partnership please uh, go back and listen to those and make your partner listen to them because you want to be on the same page and I, and I think you'll love it. Um, so great comments, Jeremy. Uh, Rick, you want to add anything there? Oh yeah. I mean, the, the thing that I just, that struck me is uh, make sure that you get all this stuff in place before pulling the trigger on the pro on the property. Um, have have mm -hmm. have all your ducks in a row with your entity set up, your your operating agreement. Have all that stuff um, set up before you actually buy the buy the property. I think that's something that we see a lot is things kind of happen after the fact sometimes, and it 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 can get messy if you're not if you're not doing things th those things first. Yeah, excellent, excellent. You'd be shocked, um, people, how many times we get a phone call of. Hey, I got this problem in a partnership, and I don't know what to do, and how should I document it? And we're like, okay, before you do the deal. And they're like, well, I already gave them the money. I'm like, oh, you know, cost beforehand. So, so important. Okay, this is a question from Scott out in Arizona. Uh, he said, I've listened to your the Note Investing Strategy show, great show. And he also commented, um, I love the Mother's Day show. Uh, also saw your fifth annual Memorial Day estate planning special. I got to have it. Hook me up. I need a trust for my mom, too. So anyway, Scott, thank you so much. And sorry, that little shameless plug. I want to let all of you listeners out there know this is our uh, fifth uh, annual uh, special. We do estate planning at a 25% discount for any client around the country getting their will and trust done. If, you'd if you're interested in that, email myself or Matt or any of us at the law firm. We'll get you the um, the web form so that you can fill it out and get that special um, mark at markjkohler.com again. Um, let me mention this too. I've got to take a side note. We've got several live uh, callers listening. If you have a question for the show, uh, please press number one. Once you call in at 646-668-8326. So dial 646-668-8326 and press the number one. We'll uh, get your name, bring you out on the show. Um, and that sort of thing. Now, here's Scott's question. He said, I've been doing some deed investing, and, and I'm looking at the history of properties, and I recently noticed in the deed history, there's a company starting to hold some of these properties that are listed for sale in a special purpose vehicle LLC. My, my question is, have you heard of these, and why would they use an SPV, as in special purpose vehicle? Is this a form of asset protection? I've never heard of this. Have you guys heard of it as well? Scott, I have not heard of this. Um, Jerem, you may have. I, I'm, I'm just going to say right now, there are so many companies out there, typically non-lawyers, that are trying to sound sexy and cool, and we've got something better than law firms have, and they're really, really performing the unauthorized practice of law. I'd like to put those folks out of business. Um, they're giving advice they, about legal strategy they shouldn't. So 
they are, they're always coming up with these little acronyms to make them sound sexy. At the end of the day, if it says comma LLC, it's just an LLC. They've just sexed up the operating agreement to make it sound cool. So, uh, Jeremy, have you even heard of these SPVs? No. I'm, uh, I was Googling it while you were talking, and I'm, I'm not seeing too much about it. So um, it, what it looks yeah. like is just, yeah, it's just an LLC that has a, spe- a specific purpose. Um, so you can make your LLC a, an SPV um, by putting that language into your, your articles or your operating agreement. Okay. Um, all right. I'm sorry, guys. We need Matt Sorensen here today. This is very challenging, um, and I want to say thank you to all your listeners, all you listeners that are asking questions about self-directed IRAs and 401ks. Um, we've got a huge following in that countrywide, and so um, thank you. And we're going to do our best here, and we'll give disclaimers when you need to email the infamous Matt Sorensen directly. But we've got another one. This is from Stephen. Um, and Jerem, you can. I'll take my first stab at this, and then probably comment Rick if, as well. If you if you got some feedback on this, no, I know Rick, you don't consult as much in the self-directed IRA arena. Here's the question: Can a self-directed IRA buy and hold bitcoins or Ethereum or the cryptocurrency as an investment? I would think it would be similar to a bar of gold or share of stock. It goes up and down, and you can sell it when you want, withdraw the funds back into the IRA. I would assume it would require a checkbook IRA LLC since the transaction has to happen using a bank account. The Bitcoin binary code can be kept in with the custodian, so no prohibitive transaction would take place by the IRA holder and hopefully no fraud on the part of the custodian. Bitcoin is not listed under the not permitted list. Oh, boy, and folks out there, if you don't know about Bitcoin, you know, if you want a wild and crazy ride, start Googling it. It is this kind of black market currency that's just crazy, and it's, it's so unique. And so I think Stephen's question is a good one. Um, Jerem, do you have a, a take on this? Uh, can the self-directed IRA own Bitcoin? I don't see any reason why it couldn't. It's not a collectible. Um, as, as far as the definition of a collectible that I know of, those are the, you know that's the one thing you that and life insurance. Those are the things you can't buy with a retirement account. Um, I, I, it seems like a. I think you'd have to get um, a lot of specific advice about it. But but off the top of my head, I can't see a reason. It, it's like it's like investing in a foreign currency, um, you know, some sort of currency investing. Um, I would think you can do it. Okay. Um, I'm going to just give a caveat, too, that I, I don't see a problem, but I would email Matt Sorensen directly. And so yeah. uh, anybody out there that has a Bitcoin question, email Matt, M-A-T, at KKOSlawyers.com. And I think Matt even has a Bitcoin article on his blog, and that's at sdirahandbook.com, S-D-I-R-A, as in self-directed IRA, handbook.com. So check out his blog there and type in the word Bitcoin, and I think there's an article there. Okay, we've got a question, and I'm going to throw this one at Rick. We've got a tax question. This is from Ruben. He says, uh, good morning, Mark. I hope you add this question to your open forum show. Um, please mention all the info. A good chunk of the story makes, helps it make sense. He says, we three people partnered on an LLC a year ago, 2016, at a real estate investment education event, REI, uh, Real Estate Investment Club. We didn't earn any money that last year. We did split, however, the education cost between three people. So the, they put money into this LLC. They paid for some education, approximately $30,000. It's not a, a name I'm familiar with, the education, but they spent about thirty grand. We didn't do our taxes for the LLC since we didn't make any income. Oh, you're killing me, Ruben. We plan on doing our taxes next year in 2018. We want to recoup as much as we can of the education expense. This year we have made some money and are planning on making more before the year ends. We also did uh, buy some education with Renatus. We love Renatus. The LC we bought in 2016 expires in June. I was planning on letting it expire and open a new one through your company, market KKOS. We'd like to be able to add our education expense on the new LLC. Should we stick it in the old one? Please advise. Well, Ruben, you, this is kind of messy. That's why you asked the question. Thank you so much. Uh, Rick, give, it, give us your first take on this. This is a tricky one. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, this is a tricky one. Um, my first intake is, you know, purely from a tax perspective, is what do you do with that that thirty thousand um, dollars? Does it just since you didn't make any money, does it just go away, or or what happens? And 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 the answer to that is no. Um, that would be considered a startup cost. Um, and the, I believe it was in. Did he say it was in 2016 that they incurred that thirty thousand yeah. fee? Yeah. Uh, so, so for 2016, it would be a startup cost. Um, didn't file a tax return. Uh, our our um, our stance, our position is that you file a tax return um, when you when you create a partnership. So there probably should have been a, a tax return filed, even if it doesn't have any numbers on it. Um, the the IRS is more than likely expecting a tax return. Um, and unfortunately, if if you didn't file an extension for that tax return, um, at this point it's going to be late and you're going to be hit with penalties. Um, but fortunately, the penalties are easy to get out of. Um, uh, those are my two two initial thoughts. Um, then going into a new partnership, that I think that's probably more on the legal side. Um, I don't I don't know that that would be in in anybody's best interest to form a completely new partnership. But I don't know. I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, I I would say this for everybody out there. When you file a new LLC with three partners and you file for a tax ID number, and Ruben, if on that SS4 you checked a box that said uh, partnership, there's a good chance you're going to get a nasty letter from the IRS at some point this year, and they're going to go, where's your partnership return? Even if it's zeros, you're still required to file an LLC partnership tax return. And this is good for all of the listeners out there. When you have a partnership, LLC, you've got to file a return, no income or not. The penalty is around 200 bucks per partner per month. You're late. Right now, we're in May. Um, this is not a good thing. Um, you want to get uh, this filed right away. And in the first year, you have penalties. You can get out of them, but you've got to pay a CPA to call them up and beg and write the right type of letter. So that's first issue, Ruben, and for everybody listening. And I would just say the education expense would be carried forward as a startup cost, and all of you would write it off this year in your own small businesses, assuming you have a business and assuming you're making money. And you've got to have the accountant on board as to what you're doing and making sure it's a valid startup uh, startup cost. And I know accountants listening out there, you know this is a squishy area. There's a lot of gray matter here. So uh, be careful with that. Um, so uh, Ruben, I would talk to your CPA, if it's our firm, get us in the loop right away. I would file the LLC tax return even late because the longer you wait and if the IRS gets wind of it, it's going to get more and more ugly. And then set up a new partnership. Sure, set up a new partnership. Start sharing expenses. I'm cool with that. Um, but I, I, I just get a consult with a lawyer and accountant. Make sure you're pulling this off properly. And our firm would love to help. Um, Can I throw one thing out there real quick, Mark? Yeah, Jeremy. Just real quick, as to the the entity, um, if it's up for renewal, renew it, um, and don't don't shut it down and do a new one with us. Although that would be great, have us clean up the one that you have, unless there's some other yes. reason to get rid of yep. it. Just we can clean up the entity that you have, get it the correct documents that you should have done from from the get go. We do that all the time. That's going to be cheaper and simpler than dissolving one and setting up a new one. Love it. All right, and I just got a text from one of our listeners that said, um, you guys are way too boring today, so, you know, make it better. So I, I haven't told I, any I will accountant share. jokes yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm open you to can tell the truth that that's, from, that that's from Matt. Matt sent that and said that we're boring. You can tell the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. And I will throw this out, everybody, because can believe it or not, in our law firm, we have some staff that share a lawyer joke in staff meeting every week, which, you know, I'm a little offended by that, but they do. And this week's lawyer joke was, what's the difference between a herd of charging buffalo and a lawyer? The lawyer charges more. Yeah, so anyway, I'm just throwing that out. <laughs> okay. All right. I hope everybody feels a little more humor today now. Okay. I'm going to throw out an estate planning question to uh, Jerem. This is from Scott, a different Scott. He says, is a beneficiary deed a viable option for estate planning? For those out there, in, there's some states like in Arizona 
where you can file a beneficiary deed that says, when I die, just give my house to this person. You're not putting them on title, which is good for asset protection. You just don't want to put people on title, and you're not giving them a gift. You're just signing this beneficiary deed that when I die, the house goes to this person. And they're saying that doesn't happen in every state. There's only some states that have this. But he says, um, Scott says, if your only major asset is your personal residence, or um, is that a good idea? Or is setting up a trust still a better option? Other smaller assets have been designated beneficiaries and a will, power of attorney, blah, 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 health care. Um, those are all in place. So should I have a trust if my only asset is my home and my state allows for a beneficiary deed? What do you think, Jeremy? Well, I mean, it, the beneficiary deed in the states where they work is 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 not a terrible idea. However, yeah, you don't you don't know you don't know that that's always going to be your only your only asset. You don't know that you're always going to live in that state. Um, I, you know, there there are issues that that could come up. There are other assets that are that you may not think about that having your trust in place can help facilitate um the the transfer of those assets so in in just about every case if somebody owns real estate uh, if somebody owns a small business interest especially those two assets we suggest that you establish a a trust you put the assets in the name of that trust um, and you know you're going to be able to to pass those assets free of probate. The other thing is is laws change. Um, Arizona or whatever other state you know you're in that has a beneficiary deed statute, um, you know that law can change and they can make them retroactive. Although they they tend not to do that. It, just to be safe, I would typically and to cover all your bases and be thorough, I would I would establish the trust and and put those those assets in the name of the trust. All right. I, I, and I, I will say this too. If it's only the house and it's that simple of an estate, use the beneficiary deed. But um, yeah. there's a lot of other little ancillary reasons, health care and taking care of someone and paying their bills and all those nice little things. So um, think about that too. But I, I think you're fine with the beneficiary deed. Okay, I'm going to throw Rick a um, softball here. This is a tax write-off question from Larry out in California. He says, is there any way to have my business pay for my life insurance policy? It's going to cost me about $400 a month, and I do not want it to come out of my personal account if I can avoid it. Can my business write off my life insurance premium? Rick, my man, what do you say? Since you can um, get the, bad guy the answer to that question is no. <laughs> oh. a, a, a simple wah, no. Wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, li- people try to life- write off life insurance all the time, and no, it's it's pretty established that that's that's not a deduction that you can take. Yeah. So yeah, be careful. Um, now, uh, one thing is I will highlight, and you'll hear people sales pitch this: is oh, set up a C corp and you can write off your life insurance. Well, that's only up to the equivalent premium of a fifty thousand dollar death benefit. I mean, it's a pittance. Right, Rick? Isn't that right? It's it's very minor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's terrible. Okay, um, I'm going to give this a shot here, uh, Jeremy. And folks, we've got about 10, 15 minutes left, maybe 11 minutes. So um, I'm going to just start rapid-firing some questions. So um, this is over to uh, Jeremy. This is Vishal. My questions are related to the Solo 401k. What companies do you recommend for a Solo 401k? I've talked to IRA Financial Group and Discount Solo and blah, blah, blah. Both companies appear to be legit, but other pricing and matters, I don't know which one's best. Ooh, this is a softball. Do you have anybody you'd recommend for a solo 401k, Jerem? Navigator Business and Retirement Services. That would be our (laughs) sister company. We set these up, uh, and we're pretty legit. So uh, we have plan documents that are approved by by the IRS, um, give us a call. Give me a call, um, or shoot me an email, uh, and we can we can help you out there. Yeah, and the one thing that's the benefit of using our office, I'll just say this, Vishal, is our fees are very affordable. Twelve hundred bucks to set up a solo four hundred one k. You get a consult or multiple consults with the lawyer, a real lawyer, through the process, 
and it's coordinated with your overall plan at our office. So we hope that we can bring the whole thing together a little better. Now, um, Rick, I've got a tough question, and if you have to punt, I get it, but I'm going to throw out a dependent question for taxes. So this is from Felix. He says, if I'm supporting a direct family member from spouse, so it's the parents of the spouse, and we're supporting this, this family member overseas, so across the world we're giving them money, can they even be included as a dependent in our taxes? Um, going through the dependent rules and who can qualify as a dependent, can you really support someone in another country and deduct them as a dependent on your taxes here in the U.S.? The answer to that question is it depends. Um, there is actually a rule. <laughs> That's the famous answer from accounts. Oh, it depends. Um, there, there actually is a rule that if the if the dependent, assuming they qualify for as a dependent, you know, half of the support and all that stuff, um, if they are a citizen of Canada or Mexico, then yes, you can include them as a dependent on your your taxes. Other outside of Canada and Mexico, no, is my understanding. Mm. That's that's what I understand it to be. I like it. Thank you so much. Great comment. Um, I I like it and. The one um, thought I have on that is if they could be illegal immigrants living in the U.S. that you're supporting, but because they're Mexico citizens, they could still be a dependent on your tax return, even if you're not yeah. sending money to Mexico, but sending money down the street. Yep, so, I believe that is correct. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, okay, the, the only so problem with that out. one, though, okay. sorry, um, is that they have to have a, a Social Security number or an I-10. And so if they're no. illegal and they're, you know, they're, that, that creates some problems there. Yeah, that's true. On the 1040, you've got to disclose the dependent social. So, yep. but, um, okay, all right. Now, this is for um, either of you guys. I'll throw, maybe I'll take a stab at it. I haven't given a comment in a minute uh, or two. So this is from Ed. He says, how to pass on your S-Corp to your child or children while avoiding taxes while alive, or estate taxes once deceased. Ooh, okay, so Ed is saying, I have an S-corporation, and I want to give it to my children now while I'm alive, or maybe I'll just give it to them when I'm deceased. Well, Ed, that's a big decision, and I'd want to know why you want to give it to them now. Um, usually that's not something we'd recommend. You keep it, you keep making the money, you control it. Now, if you're trying to create an exit strategy for your business, and have the children buy the business from you um, so that you can create some retirement income. I love it. Uh, I've got a new book coming out this fall uh, on exit strategies when you own a business. What can I do? Um, email me directly if you want to strategy, uh, strategize about that. But if you're just trying to give your escort to your children, the best way to do it is let them inherit it. Um, and Ed, if you're worth more than five million bucks, we got to talk. But if you're not rolling in cash and you're not worth $5 million, you're not going to pay estate taxes anyway. Just bequeath the stock to them. A lot of times what we do is have your revocable living trust own your S-Corp stock, which is allowed by the IRS. And so if you die, your trustee can step in, collect accounts receivable, sell the S-Corp, pass it on to the kids, do whatever you tell them in the trust. So I would let them inherit it unless you're trying to, again, sell the business and create some income. Uh, Jerem, a resident estate planner on the call, anything you'd add? Yeah, no, that's what exactly what I would do. If you uh, get, it, get it to them through inheritance, uh, through uh, having it owned by your, your trust, and if that S-Corp's got assets, which it usually doesn't, but if it does, um, I think they'll get a step up in basis on those assets if they end up selling them, if they inherit it through through the, the trust and the S-Corp instead of giving it to them now. Yeah. Love it. Okay, we've got six minutes left, and I'm going to squeeze in two more questions. And this is from Todd. He says, hey, Mark, we met a few weeks ago at your self-directed IRA seminar. You held a summit in Orange County. Uh, that was a month ago now? Gosh. Learned a ton. Really enjoyed listening to you and that. Thanks so much, Todd. Also came back and read your book, What Your CPA Isn't Telling You, and immediately insisted that my wife and adult child read it. Some great advice. <laughs> Thank you for the plug. And everybody, please, it's, if you want to get someone sold on tax planning, have them read what your CPA isn't telling you. you can get it on Amazon. 
check it out. Um, he says, here's my question. With regard to self-directed IRAs in an LLC, what set up an ongoing legal accounting and monthly property bookkeeping and tax prep and blah, blah, blah can be paid out of personal money? So he's going to set up an IRA LLC, and regarding the setup, regarding ongoing expenses, can he pay for those out of his personal account? Um, Jeremy, I'm going to let you take first stab at it. I've been the, the guinea pig taking these gut shots all morning here with first stab on hard questions. Um, this is one where I think we it's kind of gray area per se, or where do you write yeah. it off to? What do you, what's your take on that? Well, it's cleanest not to. It, it, you're safest to just pay those expenses out of the IRA itself once the LLC is set up to pay it out of the LLC. Um, there are exceptions and exemptions for certain kinds of, of expenses that can be paid personally. But those exemptions are, are a bit of a gray area, they're, they're, and I'm not going to get into the, the specifics because that will bore everyone to tears. But they're, they're, it's a gray area. If you pay it yourself, if you pay legal expenses, if you pay accounting expenses for the IRA or the IRA LLC personally, you're relying on an exemption to the prohibited transaction rules that is a bit of a gray area. So if the conservative play is to pay those expenses out of the IRA or the IRA LLC. Okay. All right. I'm with you. Um, and we'll leave it at that. If you, Here's what we say, too. If you need to pay for them personally because your IRA doesn't have enough money, you're in some kind of rough water already. So um, let yeah. your IRA pay for the bills. You're better off that way anyway. Um, and if you do pay for them personally, it's going to be a Schedule A itemized investment expense if you're lucky. So you may not even get a write-off personally. So be cautious. Um, okay, gosh, three minutes left. I'm going to hit these real quick because we just got a, a – this is real time. Steve emailed back and said, hey, do you really have to buy a new property in a 1031 exchange worth hundred grand if only 50 k is debt financed? Yes, you have to buy a new property of equal or greater value from what you sold, not how much is, you know, you're going to get in cash at closing. It has to be a new property of equal or greater value. Um, uh, you don't get to do it just for the portion of the sale that you're going to throw into the next property. You have to get new debt financing to get you up to that price. Um, uh, Pansy, last second question here. She's great, regular listener. Uh, we have an investment property that we have managed ourselves in the past. Now we are looking to hire a property management company. Would it be legal to have a clause in the lease? No smoking. This property is non-smoking and drug-free. No smoking allowed. No medical recreation marijuana allowed on the property. Boy, talk about Debbie Downer. Don't let anybody have fun, Pansy. I'm just joking. I'm not smoking marijuana anyway. Also, simply wanted to confirm if the person offering a service and management property legally, she needs to be a licensed real estate agent. Okay, so first of all, yes, you can put anything in that lease agreement you want. They have to have red hair, blue hair, or not. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are some discrepancies. Yeah, no, be careful. Yeah. Be careful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, but you can't say non-smoking, right, Jerem? Yeah, you should be fine there. You should be fine on non-smoking. But, yes, there are I, – boy, I got my, my co-host here freaking out when I said that. Be careful. <laughs> also simply wanted to confirm if a person offers a service to manage investment properties, do they have to be a licensed real estate agent? Yes. A property manager, unless they're managing their own properties, has to be a licensed real estate agent. Um, so we tried to get to all the questions. If I missed your questions, folks, um, please, please forgive me. Um, I want to just give a quick shout-out. Rick, thank you so much. That's Rick Taylor, folks. If you want to get a consult with a real CPA, Rick's available. Thanks, Rick. Hey, it's been fun. Thanks. <laughs> you bet. And Jerem Ferguson, uh, a lawyer here at our KKOS Law Office, and he will share a lawyer joke with you if you call him. Jerem, thank you. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And everybody, I just want to say thank you to you for listening to the show. We're here every week sharing tax and legal strategies, trying to make your life a little better. Um, we hope that you can share the show with your friends and family, your business partners. We'll be back next week with another amazing uh, Refresh Your Wealth show. Get to RefreshYourWealth.com, sign up for our newsletter, and uh, everybody keep living the American dream. It's real. Don't give up. It's hard. We're all working hard. 
feel alone, we're, we're with you out there. So, anyway. Thanks for listening to another hour of refreshing strategies to better live your American dream. Don't forget to get your free copy of Mark and Matt's ebooks and sign up for their weekly free newsletter with important tax deadlines and articles at refreshyourwealth.com. Oh,